Okay. Um, so let me start then. Um, what I'm going to do in this lecture is go over some of the basic terms and categories uh, of Freud's dream model. Okay. Um, now, as I said in my email to you, uh, Freud's big aspiration in the 1890s was to write a big book on neurosis, on hysteria, uh, and obsessional neurosis, and their relation to trauma. And he never did. He wrote a series of papers. He keeps running into impasses. Um, he changes his mind back and forwards over the status of, uh, of the real event of, of, of traumatic seduction. Um, he develops a concept of fantasy, uh, which is initially part of his theory of seduction, and then it seems like uh, 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 the whole thing could collapse into just fantasy. How would you know if you're dealing with a memory or a fantasy? Uh, it, so, and, and this odd, interesting displacement takes place in his work. One of the materials he's working on again and again in all these case studies are the dreams of his patients. Um, and just as he's evolving a model of the, of the symptom uh, as a compromised formation between repressing and repressed uh, forces, um, he also starts to develop a model of the dream. And indeed, the big book he ends up writing that comes out in 1900, uh, which is the first major text of psychoanalysis, is the interpretation of dreams. But uh, you can see him, as it were, confronting the same or similar problems in his analysis of dreams and his formulation of a model of the dream and of the dream work that produces the dream um, as he's encountering in uh, the model of trauma and of, uh, and of neurosis. And in particular, uh, the question, the temporal question, the question of time, the relationship between early scenes and late scenes, uh, early memories and late memories, okay comes up again and again and again. The mode of the dream, of course, is different from the mode of the symptom. Um, <coughs> and particularly, the, um, uh, the, the dominant visualization um, of the dream scene as the, uh, the manifest scene of the dream. Um, but nevertheless, uh, in a way, the model of the neurotic symptom offers him a way into thinking about dreams. But of course, the dream also is the place where he comes to realize that um, the unconscious is not a temporary pathological uh, phenomenon, the aim of, uh, and the aim of psychoanalysis being to liquidate the unconscious, okay? But the fact that dreams are ordinary, every night experiences for all of us there's no one who doesn't dream, means that the sources of the dream, the unconscious sources of the dream, are um, a, perma a permanent part of the mind. Okay, so that uh, uh, there is an, a permanent split-off uh, uh, mental system uh, that is properly unconscious um, uh, and that is not available for, for liquidation, so to speak. Okay. Now, <coughs> when, I'm going to say a bit about this notion of the unconscious um, as a way into talking about dreams. Uh, the starting point when, for Freud's formulation is uh, of the unconscious is uh, that there are certain exclusions 
from mental, from conscious mental life. Um, and that's the starting point for Freud's foundational category of the unconscious. And the term here is unconscious, not subconscious, which is, people often use that term, subconscious. Uh, and of course, the, the, if you think of the um, etymology of the words, subconscious means just below consciousness. Okay. Uh, unconscious, the word un, as Freud himself comments at different points, is a radical negation of consciousness. Whereas sub, the subconscious is what he calls, in his terminology, the preconscious. Okay? It's something that we may not be conscious of now, um, but which, which, which one might, under certain circumstances, turn one's attention to and summon into consciousness. It's just below the threshold of consciousness. The, another word is subliminal, it's often used. But the unconscious is radically different from that. Okay? It's not just below the threshold of consciousness. Um, and consciousness might turn its powers of attention onto this material if it so chose. So the postulation of the unconscious as a separate mental system cut off from consciousness begins uh, with the observation of lacunary phenomena, gaps, lacunae. Um, the ordinary data of consciousness is, after all, d defective. It's marked by absences, gaps, lacunae, distortions of various kind, sudden unaccountable intensities, as well as equal striking, equally striking uh, absences of affect. Conscious discourse and behavior are regularly thrown off course. They fail of their intentions, as in classical parapraxies, as described by Freud, like slips of the tongue and pen, bungled actions, sudden amnesias and forgettings, compulsive repetitions of various kinds when we don't know why or even quite what we are repeating. Okay? Or that classic example that I think we've all experienced where you're trying to remember a, a word, very often it's a name, um, and the wrong one keeps coming to mind. And you know it's the wrong one, but it still keeps coming to mind. So your knowing that it's the wrong one has no power to stop <coughs> the wrong one from coming to mind. And very often, the more you try to remember the word or the name that won't come, uh, the more insistently that wrong one, the one that you know is the wrong one, still keeps coming to mind, as it were. I mean, ponder on that common everyday phenomenon that we've all experienced. Um, <coughs> it's worth thinking about. Okay. Now, Freud infers the presence of unconscious mental contents and of unconscious mental acts and this is what allows us to, to, to this inference to re-establish coherent and intelligible sequences in the gappy, interrupted, distorted nature of conscious discourse and behaviour. Consequently, Freud distinguishes between what he calls the manifest and the latent content of dreams, of bodily symptoms and hysteria, uh, of repeated obsessional rituals and behaviours in obsessional neurosis. And this latent and unconscious content is to be rigorously distinguished from the conscious or manifest content. Hence, the Freudian consciousness, unconscious is not the same thing, for example, like the common sense literary notion, which is a very valuable notion, of the assumed or the implied um, if you like, the subliminal dimensions of discourse, something that's taken for granted, 
um, and is assumed, as it were. This is, this is quite an important dimension of, of, of speech and language and, and, and of literary analysis, this notion of the subliminal dimension of discourse, the, the taken for granted, something that is so taken for granted, so assumed, it gets expressed, literary theorists have argued, at the level of rhythm or metaphor, but, but, and doesn't have to be um, made explicit, uh, but which is present in the connotations of metaphor, in the unfolding of poetic rhythm, through the intonations of the speaking voice. Now, as literary students, we're familiar enough with that kind of dimension of literary texts, as it were. Um, something is then present through the formal and aesthetic dimensions of language and of speech. Now, the unconscious isn't quite the same as that, though there are obviously going to be examples where uh, they overlap, that is to say, where... Um, unconscious materials that are, in the strict sense, unconscious, that is to say, repressed, excluded from consciousness, do return through the formal, rhythmic, aesthetic um, dimensions of, of language and of speech. However, unconscious content has to be interpolated, inserted by the interpreter into the gaps and distortions of the manifest uh, content of conscious discourse. So between, between the manifest uh, level and the latent level, there obtains, uh, in Freud's account, relations of force, relations of exclusion and often violent re-intrusion uh, of that um, latent content. So they're not just relations of meaning, that is to say, of logical implication. Something isn't said, but it's logically implied or it's ironically hinted at. Uh, okay, we're familiar with those kinds of strategies of discourse when something is both said and not said at the same time. Um, and how often in literary discussions do we say, oh, but isn't, is he being ironic here? Okay, uh, how do we read what is being said? Do we read it as, in fact, implying the opposite of what it apparently says? Okay, we're all familiar with that, those kinds of literary linguistic strategies. Um, now, sometimes that can be the occasion for, the, if you like, uh, the return of the repressed, um, but the, the two things are conceptually distinct. Okay, so what's at stake then are not just relations of meaning, of one meaning to another that's hinted at or implied, okay, but relations of force, where the manifest excludes the latent and is itself in turn distorted, blanked out or silenced by the struggle of the latent content's attempt to re-infiltrate its way back into the picture, into consciousness and into discourse. What we have then is a struggle of mental forces within the sign material of language and of discourse. Okay? A struggle of mental forces within the, the signifying, the semiotic material of language and discourse. Now Freud's metapsychology has two different moments of systematic formalization. What is called the first and the second topography. Um, Okay, the first topography is formalized in what are called the metapsychological papers <coughs> of 1915, and especially the two papers on the unconscious and repression. Um, now, in these two papers, Freud distinguishes between, on the one hand, the conscious, what he calls the conscious, uh, also referred to as sometimes as the perception consciousness system. Okay. 
the, the conscious or the perception consciousness system. Secondly, he distinguishes uh, another mental system which he calls the pre-conscious, which would be roughly equivalent to the subliminal or, or, or the subconscious, I suppose. Um, and thirdly, the unconscious. For Freud, consciousness is only one transient property that distinguishes our external and internal perceptions from mental life as a whole. Mental life, what Freud calls the psychical, cannot be reduced to the field of consciousness only. The field of consciousness is only one part or dimension of mental life. Consciousness is characterized by a focusing of attention in our sense organs, where we pay attention to something. We turn like a kind of, uh, uh, a kind of um, searchlight of attention onto something uh, and make it the object of consciousness, a form of attending, as it were. Um, and it is limited in scope and temporary. Our perceptions, both of external realities, but also of our internal mental states and processes, have, have to be registered and filed away elsewhere in a different mental locale to allow for the influx of new material into consciousness. So the storage, the inscription or storage of mental contents can't take place in that clear focus of attending of consciousness. Uh, otherwise, uh, as Freud argues, we would never be able to, to be open to new influxes of sense data. The content of our immediate consciousness, then, is always being replaced by new material. Now, it's obvious that we store up, and we can, in fact, call to mind, a vast range of mental contents, considerably greater than could ever be attended to in the bright, light, but limited scope of consciousness at any one time. Now, this larger field, Freud calls the preconscious, material that is stored elsewhere, but might at any time come forward into consciousness. It has, however, to be rigorously distinguished from the mental system he calls the unconscious. Descriptively speaking, the pre-conscious as a mental archive of memory traces can be said to be unconscious because we happen at the moment not to be attending to it. So it's descriptively unconscious in the sense that it is lacking the attribute of consciousness. We are not at that moment thinking of it and calling it to mind. However, the pre-conscious as a memory system does not belong to the unconscious as a closed mental system. Although particular pre-conscious contents or memories can be drawn into the unconscious under certain circumstances. Very often the, the effect is then we can't access those memories. Um, and the example of not being able to, able to recall in a particular instance a name that we perfectly well know we know we know it, we know that it's inscribed somewhere in our mental system, but we can't access it, okay? Um, but we access the wrong name <laughs> repeatedly, okay? So that would be a commonplace example of the way in which then a pre-conscious material, uh, content that we perfectly, f we know we know, but we don't, we can't at that moment become aware of it, okay? Um, because it's come in into some sort of connection with um, uh, unconscious materials and has become temporally unavailable. Uh, and I'll give that example again. Uh, 
So I think I think it's I find that a very useful didactic example, you know, where the wrong name keeps stubbornly offering itself instead of the name that, that, that we cannot recall but we know we know. The repressed doesn't just vanish away because it is excluded from consciousness. It doesn't then thereby disappear. Rather, it forms a closed system of mental representations of its own, with its own mental laws, which Freud calls the primary processes, processes of condensation and displacement that he elaborates in his account of the dream work. The primary processes differ from the laws that regulate the field of consciousness, which Freud calls the secondary processes. And there's a problem with this primary-secondary because it implies that the primary processes came first and were followed by the secondary processes. And this has been challenged by later psychoanalysts. The primary processes differ from the laws that regulate the field of consciousness. Okay. The, the repressed is material that has been worked over in a certain way by the primary processes and which manifest themselves in the dream work that produces the dream. And not only does the repressed not vanish obligingly away when we push it out of our minds, it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't um, uh, just disappear or vanish. Um, rather, like when you delete things in your computer, uh, and then it turns out they're just in another category over there, which is called deleted, okay, and which can often be accessed. And even when you delete the delete the category of the de the deleted folder, as it were, some computer, you know, engineer will come along and find that inscription somewhere, okay. Um, so it's almost like the impossibility of ever finally deleting anything. Um, Okay, so it doesn't vanish obligingly away, but it seeks continually to return to consciousness, to find expression in speech or behavior or in dreams. Like the laws of Newtonian physics, um, in which you'll recall from school, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. For every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. One could say that in Freud's dynamic system of mental forces, for every act of repression, there is an equal and opposite return of the repressed. For every act of repression, there is an equal and opposite return of the repressed. And this return takes place not directly in its own terms, but often via the detour of displacement, condensation, symbolic representation. Um, there's, a, there's a little anecdote uh, that I quite like. Again, it's got a certain didactic value of... Um, of, of uh, somebody having to introduce uh, a, uh, a distinguished violinist at a concert um, who was German and, uh, and whose name had an unfortunate association with a certain English word. And uh, the poor introducer is thinking, oh my God, I'm having to introduce Miss Fluck. I know, <laughs> I mustn't say that word. And he keeps saying to himself, fluck with an L, fluck with an L, with an L, don't forget the L. And the moment comes to introduce this distinguished violinist. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, tonight I am delighted to introduce to you Miss Clunt. He remembered the L, okay? He told himself, but the, the, un the forbidden sexual word gets displaced onto a nearby word, so it gets heard, um, even though he hung desperately onto that letter L, okay, which he thought was going to be um, his guarantor. Okay, so the return of the repressed is what characterizes the dream, and Freud defines dreams as uh, the disguised fulfillment of repressed wishes. The disguised fulfillment of repressed wishes.
Freud argues against the then prevailing neurological view that dreams are meaningful and that their frequently nonsensical or incoherent character is due to the fundamentally conflictual character of mental dynamics. That's what's made them apparently nonsensical, but in fact meaningful. They are the compromised products of that conflict, and they are located at the borderline between mental systems, especially between the unconscious and the preconscious systems, where Freud posits a major um, function of repression taking place. In other words, dreams are borderline or hybrid phenomena, and Freud calls them the royal road to the unconscious, the royal road to the unconscious in a famous formulation. Not the unconscious itself, but the road to the unconscious. To interpret a dream is to assign to it a meaning by replacing it with a set of thoughts and wishes, what Freud calls the latent dream thoughts, okay, which are the sort of energizer or motor of the dream, the latent dream thoughts and wishes. And these can be fitted back into the chain of our conscious mental acts uh, with an importance and a validity that are equal to the rest. So Freud takes uh, the latent dream thoughts very seriously. Uh, this chain of mental acts is part of our psychic history and it goes right back to childhood. Uh, and it's anchored in those formative moments or dramas or even traumas in which our subjectivity is shaped, certain founding or foundational uh, uh, moments. In his introductory remarks in Chapter 2 on the method of interpreting dreams that preface the analysis of the specimen dream of Irma's injection, Freud contrasts two ancient methods of dream interpretation. Firstly, there's the symbolic method that takes the dream as a whole and treats it holistically as a symbolic representation of another content that is, in some respects, analogous to the dream content. For example, you know, in the Old Testament, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream for him of seven fat kine in the King James Version or cows uh, <coughs> that are followed by seven lean kine and that eat up uh, the seven fat ones. And he interprets it as a symbolic prophecy that seven years of famine were to follow seven years of plenty and would consume all that was produced during the prosperous years. And so Joseph, if you recall your Old Testament, um, uh, saves up food during the prosperous years so that when the famine comes, he can still feed the people. Now, this is a fairly obvious one-to-one -one allegorical equation of kine or cows equals years. Um, and one could say it's a little bit like certain kinds of traditional literary analysis that makes sense of the dream text as, as a whole, as a unity, as a holistic unity, as something that's internally coherent and integrated. Uh, and the whole aesthetic of organic form uh, that privileges the formal unity of a text um, uh, <coughs> as an aesthetic whole would be an example of that, that, that way of reading something. So it's at the level of the text uh, or the artwork considered as an integrated, um, harmonious and organic whole that meaning takes place. By contrast with this method is the decoding method that breaks the dream sequence up <coughs> and treats it as a set of signs as a signifying sequence or signifying chain, as in the semiotic model of structural linguistics, 
that breaks down the chain of speech to analyze its separate component uh, parts. As in, you think of just parsing a sentence and breaking it down into noun, verb, uh, adjective, whatever, segmenting the chain of speech into, into different categories of words that are combined together to form the sentence as a whole. Now, each element of the dream text is decoded in this method according to a fixed key or code. A letter, for example, in some of the old dream books, a letter signifies trouble is to come. A funeral signifies a betrothal is to come. So the essence of the method is that the work of interpretation is brought to bear, not on the dream as a whole, as in symbolic interpretation, but on each separate signifying element or sign that, that operates independently. It is, Freud says, as though the dream were a geological conglomerate in which each fragment of rock requires a separate assessment. That's a nice metaphor. All right. uh, the, it's as though the dream were a geological conglomerate, a, a formation, in which each fragment of rock requires a separate uh, assessment because each fragment of rock may come from a different period uh, and by the upheavals and, uh, of the earth, you know, different earth strata or rock strata have been crushed together and moulded together to form, I don't know, whatever, uh, a particular outjutting piece of rock. Um, and the geologist analysing this will, will be able to um, discriminate different layers and different strata coming from different geological periods that have been moulded or crushed together. That is to say, to continue Freud's geological metaphor, the dream is composed like, like rock strata uh, from different periods that are all, uh, all moulded, often in a, in a, in a violent way, um, uh, and compressed together. Now, the validity of this decoding method would, of course, depend on the validity of the key or the code book that was being used. Both methods, at their most sophisticated, were deployed in some relation to the dreamer's current life situation, so that the dream interpreter would, would uh, sit, the, sit the, the dreamer down and, and ask them about their life and their, their situation, their life situation and their marriage and their children and their etc., 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 before attempting to use either of those methods as a method of interpretation of the, um, of the person's dreams. An example that Freud gives um, is Aristander's famous interpretation of Alexander the Great's dream when he was besieging the city of Tyre in Asia Minor in what had turned out to be a long, drawn-out and difficult war, costly war. Alexander dreamed of a satyr dancing uh, on his shield. Now, Aristander replaced the visual image by its verbal sign, uh, Sata, or in Greek, that's satyros. Okay. Um, and he then segmented it into a linguistic signifying chain. So he divided it as a, as, as a linguist would. Satyros. Which in Greek means, Tyre is thine. Tyre will belong to you. A neat example of both the idea of the dream as a disguised set of signs or text and of the dream's visual conversion of a signifying sequence into an enigmatic visual image. One could take it as either a message from the gods to Alexander uh, <coughs> uh, that 
that victory would be his, or as a wish on the part of Alexander that for such a victory, or a wish for the promise from the gods of such a victory, depending on whether one is an ancient Greek or a modern Freudian. Freud goes on to compare the dream to the emergence of involuntary ideas in visual or acoustic form once the mechanism of self-censorship has been relaxed. And he relates these involuntary ideas to psychopathological symptoms, such as hysterical um, paralyses or phobias or obsessional ideas with their disguised trains of thought and memory that connect back to the formative drama of our lives. He also connects them, interestingly, to accounts of poetic creation by the German romantic poets, uh, such as Schiller, uh, who describe processes of, um, of uh, the formation of poetry um, in ways that are sort of suggestively analogous um, to Freud's account of, 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 of dream processes. Freud establishes this distinction then <coughs> very firmly between the manifest content and the latent content. The difference from the ancient model of interpretation is that the bridge from the manifest back to the latent can only be provided by the free associations of the dreamer himself. In other words, there's no code book that enables you to say X always equals Y, A always equals B. Okay? There's no code book. But what you have to go on are the free associations of the dreamer and the field of association that the dreamer builds up around the different component parts of his or her dream. <coughs> Access to these associations that lead to the latent dream thoughts cannot be got then either by the symbolic interpretation of the dream as a whole, as if it were you know, an organic, harmonious, uh, holistic work of art or something, for this leaves the dream's facade intact. It hasn't, hasn't been challenged. And so it holds and ensnares the dreamer at the level of the enigmatic dream image, for example, the dancing satyr. That is, to what Freud calls the day's residues, the material from the day before, uh, or of the very recent past, that has provided the occasion and the stimulus for the formation of the dream. Aristander's interpretation stays at the level of the day's residues of Alexander's dream. That is to say, Alexander is in the business of besieging the city of Tyre. And that gives him his way into uh, decoding this enigmatic but fascinating visual image of the dancing satyr dancing on a shield. Perhaps the Freudian question could be, uh, but what does the wish to conquer Tyre represent? Okay. Um, uh, and what has it got to do with satyrs, those lecherous half-men, half-goats? Okay. Uh, why should it choose a satyr? Well, it rhymes with tire, um, but the other determinant in the, in the no is the notion of a satyr as a lecherous half-goat, half-human. Half and what, what have shields got to do with it? Why is there a shield in the dream? Because clearly there are further questions. There are further occasions for further associations. So the meaning of a dream element is what the dream element means to the dreamer, okay? not what it means to the interpreter. What the dream element means by way of association to the dreamer, not what it means to the, to the interpreter. Now it's true, Freud sometimes uses uh, what he calls de-symbolic, um, a kind of code um, which he's come to by just analyzing so many dreams and just seeing the same things turning up again and again. 
Now, those things, however, do not give you the meaning. People often misunderstand this. They think, oh, Freud uses a code. You know, pointy things are phallic, round things are womb-like, uh, etc. There's a whole series of body analogies, etc. Uh, that turn, and they do. They turn up repeatedly. And there are also certain other things uh, uh, in, in which uh, this, the, 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 the uh, Freud and uh, other analysts just find the same thing turning up again and again. Like, how, you know, in how is it 90% or only 85% uh, of uh, analyses in which the very first session begins with the an analysand saying, oh, I had a dream last night. Oh, yes, what was that? Oh, I was in a crowded situation and I was completely naked. And that was terribly embarrassing. Okay. How many times does an analysis begin with that dream, which clearly references the, the analysand's fears of what are going to happen to him in the analysis as he strips himself naked in front of another person? So there are certain regularities. But that doesn't give you access to why he might be frightened. Um, you may find that certain repetitive womb type or phallic or whatever or genital symbols keep cropping up. But that doesn't give you the meaning of the dream. It gives you certain references, but you can still only the, the, the meaning of the dream can still has, has still to be arrived at through the dream as associations. So the fact that there are certain very common, so common to, as, as to tempt Freud to claim that they're universal <coughs> connections um, in terms of the symbolism in dreams, that that doesn't deliver the meaning of the dream itself. It simply gives you a clue or a hint at the level of what the dream, what the, the dream symbol is referencing. Okay? That this is a dream in which this bodily part or whatever uh, is involved, um, but that doesn't give you the meaning of the dream. You still need uh, to go through that, um, that uh, dismantling of the dream sequence to allow the dreamer to free associate. Okay. Now in, in, instead of the signifying chain of the dream text, <coughs> instead, sorry, instead of that kind of interpretation through use of a code, um, the dream text must be segmented into discrete fragments. In the case of the dream of Irma's injection, Freud divides it up into 21 different sections. 21. The cut that breaks the dream sequence can only be determined by the dreamer and by the dreamer's association. When the dreamer starts associating, um, it's associating to this element or to that, or, or this sequence of two, three, or four elements, okay? So the cut is going to be determined again uh, by the dreamer. And to some extent, that's analogous to a linguist who's trying to, tr uh, as it were, analyze and track down a new language um, that's been discovered in, 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 say, a part of the world. Uh, uh, and, the, and the linguist can't tell in advance where, where the word, one word ends and where the other, begin, the next one begins or what is the end of a coherent, intelligible sequence, which we would call in, in our language a sentence. Okay. He's reliant on, on, on the speaker to give him those clues, as it were. Uh, the linguist can't tell in advance where to, where to cut the chain of speech to produce co coherent units. And the same with the dream interpreter. It's up to the dreamer's association, which will cluster in various ways to different sections of the dream sequence. And these sections vary in length from one word or short sentence in the dream text uh, to some quite substantial sequences of the dream text. Okay. And there is a partial analogy here with the way a linguist will, will, will segment the chain of speech um, 
knowing where to cut that stream of sounds, as it were. But it's, as I say, it's determined by reference to the native speaker and by reference to the dreamer supplying his associations. Now, the linguist will attempt to establish word groups or word paradigms in mapping a new language uh, to which individual words will go, uh, will belong, like I will go tomorrow, knowing uh, that I belongs to a paradigm of other pr personal pronouns. So in, uh, uh, and when the speaker chose the word I, he chose it instead of you or me or she or he or they. And so the full significance of the term I is its relationship to the other terms in the paradigm which might have appeared at that place in the sentence but haven't. So in order to choose I, the speaker has to not choose the other appropriate uh, words in the word paradigm. And the same with the verb. I will go tomorrow, I will come tomorrow, I will return tomorrow. There's a whole set of verbs of motion that might have been appropriately used at that point. So if the speaker has to choose one of those, uh, and not to choose the others. So the force of what is chosen is partly determined by its relationship to what is not chosen. And again, tomorrow, yesterday, last year, whatever. Okay. You can see the ways in which there are kind of... Pa the linguist can establish word clusters or word paradigms and then begin to establish this word has been chosen instead of that one. The dream analyst can also allow the free associations of the dream uh, to each separate fragment of the dream. And this can allow a complex network of ideas and associations to form gradually, in which he then tries to establish groupings and repetitive clusters in the field of dream associations, that not identical with, but have some partial analogy with the way a linguist might work in establishing word clusters and word, word groupings. The dream text will be laconic, Freud says, by comparison with the extensive network of associations elaborated by the dreamer around the separate parts of the dream. An enormous effort of distortion and compression has been expended in producing the dream, which is a result of the impact of the repressed dream wishes on the censorship that functions between the unconscious system and the preconscious. Now, this effort of distortion and compression, Freud calls the dream work. And the, work, the notion of work is quite important here. A sort of a labor, a, a working over and working through process on, on, the, on the materials of the dream. As I said earlier, Freud relates the dream work to the primary processes of mental functioning in which psychic energy, which for Freud is essentially libido, an energy of desire or wishing, slides in an unbound or uncontrolled way along a chain of different mental representations in the unconscious system. This energy of wishing slides from term to term, from image to image, without regard to syntax, logic, the law of non-contradiction that regulate the secondary processes of conscious thought and discourse. And this constant sliding of unconscious primary processes presses towards immediate satisfaction and discharge by the shortest route, Freud argues. Now, the modalities of the dream work, Freud theorizes under four main headings. Condensation, displacement, rep what he calls representability, um, which you could kind of translate as visualization or dramatization or even scenification, the turning of something into a scene, into a situation. 
which is then uh, represented and visualized and in some sense acted even like a scenario in a play. So condensation, displacement, representability, scenification I'm calling it, and finally secondary revision, which is quite an important function. Now all those, so all those concepts have sections devoted to them in chapter 6, which is why I really wanted chapter six to, those sections of chapter 6 to be scanned. So do um, have a look at those sections of chapter 6. These result in the general character of the dream, which Freud calls overdetermination. So it's a key concept, the notion of overdetermination. Now, um, there is no, that is to say, there is no one-to-one simple correlation between particular elements or signs in the manifest content and their equivalents in the dream thoughts, of which they would be the, the simple symbol of, in a sort of A equals B kind of thing. So uh, a, a terrible, a simple example would be, uh, or a diagrammatic example would be, um, if you've got a dream um, that's made up of a series of, uh, of elements, signs, uh, going to give it. Sorry, I seem to be fated to have have um, pens that, that give out. There's one. Fingers crossed. Okay. So, if you think of it as a chain of signifying elements, S1, S2, S3, S4, S to the power of n, okay. And you could break, uh, uh, the dreamer's associations breaks the uh, chain of the, the manifest content or dream text into a sequence like that. There isn't going to be, as it were, an exact match at the level of the latent dream thoughts. Right? So at the level of the, of, the, of the latent dream thoughts, you might get a sequence that goes T1, T2, T3, T4, T5, T6, T7. There's a lot more of them. Uh, again, T to the power of N. Okay. Now, there isn't going to be a neat, a neat set of correlations. For S1 to get into the manifest um, dream scene or dream... Uh, a manifest content of the dream, it will need, as it were, contributions from, let's say, uh, at least three other elements in the unconscious dream thoughts. Okay? And uh, one of these elements may be more intense and more highly charged than the other. So it will have connections with S1, S2, maybe all of them. There may be elements from T1 in all, all, all of the... Uh, 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 the distinguishable element, uh, units of the, of the manifest. Um, again, S3 will have connections back to different sets of dream thoughts. Um, and those dream thoughts themselves will, as it were, radiate out into different elements at the top. Okay. So there isn't a neat correlation between, as it were, a conscious chain and an unconscious chain with a kind of match, as it were, and an equal sign between one and the other. And that's that process that Freud calls overdetermination. What determines that this signifying element or that signifying element gets into the man manifest content of the dream is its multiple relations to different unconscious clusters, different clusters of <coughs> unconscious thoughts. 
So there's no one-to-one -one correlation there between particular elements or signs in the manifest content and their equivalence in the dream thoughts of which they are the symbol. Intensely charged key elements in the dream thoughts may be represented over and over again in the manifest content, while <coughs> the same detail of the manifest dream can be connected back to more than one of the underlying dream thoughts. The manifest elements of the dream scene, then, the S1s, uh, the S numbers, are, are nodal points on which can converge many different chains of association. And this overdetermination of the manifest content by the large number of latent associations, uh, and in particular by the nucleus of dream thoughts around which the, um, the unconscious dream thoughts cluster or are grouped, Freud sees a, a nucleus where the, as it were, the, uh, the unconscious wishes is localized. Um, this is an indication that the dream work is not a conscious or rational or consistent process of symbolization or of representation. When Freud says in a famous phrase, the dream work does not think. The dream work does not think. There's, there's no conscious, uh, as it were, transcriber who is transcribing the, T, the T1 to TN sequence into the S1 to SN sequence. Okay. The dream work is the result. Uh, he says, the dream work does not think, and this means that it simply manipulates and moulds the dream thoughts into plastic form, into scenic form, without ever producing any new thoughts of its own. The dream work is the result of a collision of forces, and the resulting compromise between the repressed dream wishes and the censorship, like a kind of resultant force in physics. And it's this collision, in this collision, the mobility and the persistence of unconscious desire of unconscious wishing, seeks blindly to find a detour round the defences of the ego and the anxieties that keep those defences in place. Okay, I'm going to have to finish in a minute or two. Um, let me just say, in the dream of Irma's injection, a scene of adult professional rivalries is laid out by Freud as the residues of the dream day on the night of which the dream was produced. Freud's hypersensitivity to criticism on the score of Irma means that he strongly reacts to his friend and colleague Otto's remark that Irma was not very well by sitting, uh, whereas she just had an analysis with Freud and Otto's met her and comes back saying she's really not feeling too good at all. And Freud feels impugned implicitly by Otto's remark. Uh, so he sits down that evening and writes up uh, before retiring to bed a complete account uh, of her case, of her treatment, for his mentor, Joseph Breuer, who co-authored that text we looked at with him, uh, and who appears in the dream as Dr. M. And Freud, in a sense, is defending himself against the charge of failure and incompetence as a doctor by refiguring his patient, Irma, with a whole new set of ailments and diseases, and by attributing nonsensical diagnoses to the older brother figure, Dr. M. And the ultimate blame for Irma's condition is passed on to his friend or rival Otto, who's, who provoked the dream by saying, well, I saw Irma again and she really isn't too well, um, who makes in the dream the gift of foul-smelling liquids to other men's wives while giving poisonous injections from his dirty shringe to Freud's recalcitrant patient Irma. The manifest dream scene, then, is one that's based on the day's residues and it's the scene of the medical gaze uh, the gaze of the male doctor with its female object 
and with the bearers of that gaze located in the compromised authority figure of Dr. M and the opposed groupings that the dream shows us of friendly versus hostile uh, professional peers of Freud's. However, it's possible to sense a different scene behind that medical gaze, that Freud, in a sense, doesn't move back to what he calls um, the capitalist of the dream, the energizing infantile um, pre-scene or proto-scene proto or primal scene, if you like, um, which, which enables the dream, uh, the residues of the day before, to be mobilized into the production of a dream, of a dream scene and a dream narrative. However, I think by reading the dream text ourselves, we can begin to sense at different points, you know, a further layer, another scene, ein anderer Schauplatz, another scene uh, uh, that is operative behind the scene of uh, adult medical professional rivalries that are being played out at the manifest level of the dream. Okay, so we might talk about that in, in the seminar tomorrow evening. I'll finish there.